Hey, Pete. Hey, Tracy. Nice to see you again. We're back with episode two. Yes, that's right. We're learning about the life sciences, particularly in WA. Uh, we've had a good overview from Glenn Butcher in episode one about the space generally, and we've got a lot of great guests coming up, but we've got a bit of a, a double header for this conversation. We do. Two amazing scientists, which I think you captured live while you were in Perth. Yes. They're at Oz Biotech. So you might hear some, the occasional bit of background noise, but it's the, the ambience of, you know, hearing people who are so passionate about life sciences being there in WA. So that was. Yeah. There were 1,300 people there for the conference. Wow. So it was really busy and humming. So yeah, it was yeah. great to be able to, to capture these guys. And what I liked about this, because, you know, I know a bit about vaccines and from mm -hmm. my own experience and we've all, through whether you're involved in healthcare or not through, through COVID, know more about vaccines. We've paid so much attention to vaccine development recently, but these conversations are a great resource to understand two areas that I guess are similar but different being vaccine and drugs, right? Yeah, absolutely. So these are really clear, I think, explanations of the process of developing drugs and developing vaccines. Now, when we talk about drugs, I think Martine specifically talks mostly about small molecules. So small molecule drugs are drugs that are produced from chemistry in a lab. It's all about creating novel jobs that drugs, not jobs, drugs that have therapeutic effects. It also creates jobs, but that's another story. And just a really clear description, I think, of that process. And I think the other really important nugget from Martine in this is that just because a drug works doesn't mean that it'll succeed, which mm. is sad but true. But that's the commercial side of this conversation. And then with Alma, the conversation around vaccines and how those develop. And you're right, there are parallels for differences. And for my mind, the big difference is that vaccines are about preventing disease and drugs are about treating disease. So mm. you can already, if you put a commercial hat on there, see a little bit of a preference for one over the other because one pill that I take every day is going to generate potentially more revenue than a vaccine that I get one shot in my arm. Having said that, I think that the importance of vaccines in public health have never been more clear for, for us and the opportunities, as Alma speaks, are immense. And Australia's got a really rich vaccine heritage and you can point to the Gardasil vaccine for human papillomavirus, which is now in 145 countries around the world. And I think is a really great illustration of the possibilities. That's from Professor Ian Fraser and Dr. Jean Zhu over in Queensland. But then also what Alma didn't really talk about is the vaccine project that she works on is called the Australian Strep A Vaccine Initiative, which is a collaboration between Telethon Kids Institute and the Murdoch Children's Research Institute in Melbourne. And that's actually received about $35 million of catalytic funding from the federal government, which is right. being matched now with philanthropic investment. And they're taking a Strep A vaccine into phase two clinical trials. So there was a few little nuggets, I think, in this one, and also some definitions that I think I, might be worth coming to. Well, let's jump into the first conversation then with Alma Fuller-Ria, head of Strep A Vaccines at Telethon Kids Institute. So my name's Alma Fuller-Ria. I am the head of the Strep A Vaccines team at Telethon Kids Institute. And my role there is really to try and take a lead vaccine candidate through to clinical proof of concept. That's the current program we're working on. We're keen to dive into a bit more and learn about vaccine development and 
translational science. So where do we start in trying to understand something like that? So I think the first thing to say about vaccine development is that it's a long, expensive process. High risk, however, really high reward if we get it right and we can actually have a vaccine that we can give to people that's safe, that's effective and that doesn't have the undesired side effects. So I think that's the first thing to say. And the COVID pandemic has actually shown the world that it's actually doable. You can do it faster if you had a lot of money and a lot of collaborative global effort. So I think what the pandemic has shown us is that we can do things better, faster, quicker. Someone describes the COVID vaccine and the pandemic kind of like the block of um, the, the vaccine development world where, you know, under the circumstances where you need to get it done and you've got like infinite amount of res- time and resources, you can get it done. But has, has that perhaps put the wrong kind of pressures on uh, this space or the right kind of pressures when it comes to, well, now we've done it before, like, you know, we should be doing this more? I think the COVID-19 pandemic was unprecedented for a start. We were experiencing a pandemic the likes of nothing that we've seen before and there was a real strong need because we had severe disease, we had high death so it was understandable that governments came together and there was just this enormous push to develop a vaccine as quickly as possible. I mean we note that it's registered for emergency use only so it is a pandemic response. I think what we've learnt from the pandemic in terms of vaccine development is that there are strategies that we can take to do things faster. For example, adaptive trial design. So we can be smarter at the way we design our trials. We can be smarter at the way we pick our endpoints to achieve the desired outcome. And the outcome is always to have something available for the vulnerable populations that need it. And then thinking generally about vaccine design, how do you put these in? Are there stages to think about and how to start breaking this down to understand how the the whole process might work? Yeah, so vaccine development end-to-end, I mean, it's really product development, isn't it? And it can be applied to small molecules or drugs or vaccines or biologics and a number of other, you know, devices and in vitro diagnostics. But basically what needs to happen is you need to have the discovery phase. And that's that very first phase when you're understanding the biology of the particular disease that you're wanting to treat. You're trying to identify targets and you're then, in the case of vaccines, trying to identify which parts of the pathogen that you want to eliminate are the ones that you need to target. And that takes time also and it takes money and it's that discovery phase. Once you've moved out of that discovery phase and you've identified your lead target, then you go into development. And that means that you want to look at how do you manufacture that vaccine? You've got a process for manufacturing it in the lab, small scale, but if you were to be successful, you need to scale this up and be able to make millions of doses a year. How are you going to do that? Is it going to be cost effective? What are the barriers, you know, from small scale to large scale? And then once you've done the manufacturing, you need to enter into clinical trials. Of course, before that, you need to do some toxicology and some studies in animals to make sure that there's no red flags that would require you to then to address those red flags. And I think it's all iterations. Often in discovery, you know, you might start with 10 candidates and you funnel down to the one that is the safest, 
the cheapest and perhaps maybe not the cheapest but the easiest to make you know there are all these factors that you need to factor in and then you get to the clinic now the clinical development part is very expensive time consuming so you really want to do it right and not not need to repeat things over and over again because it is costly so by the time you've come through discovery and the preclinical work to address safety to make sure that your product or your vaccine candidate is doing what you think it's doing in animal models, you then get to one candidate that you want to progress through clinical trials. On the candidates point, so you know you mentioned you might have 10 candidates, so is that 10 different variants of the vaccine and different like the way it's made up? It could be 10 different variants, it could be 10 different compositions, it could be the same core antigen with different adjuvants, different stimuluses that are mixed up with this to make your body respond to it better. And there are all sorts of different ways to formulate a vaccine. There might also be a formulation where you don't want refrigeration, for example. And this is important in remote regional settings where you might not have access to a freezer or a fridge and you need it to be stable. So there's all sorts of Iteration. So I think you need to think of it as I've identified the molecule or the target and then I need to think about how I'm going to formulate that to make it stable, to make it injectable or to make it deliverable and then you go into developing a large-scale manufacture process. Does it work there? And, and I guess what I'm trying to outline is that there are many stage gates and many go-no-goes, many times where you may fail and I think the the important thing to remember is we want to fail and fail fast like if if it's not going to work you want to know right at the start or as you know well before you go to clinic that this isn't going to work for whatever reason so that's what we try and do in vaccine development eliminate all of the the non-contenders and they might be non-contenders not because they wouldn't work but simply because we can't make them in the quantities that you would need to vaccinate a whole country or, yes. or the whole world. Yes, and and is and I want to come back to this uh, the, the point around refrigeration how, and the different ways they're delivered in a second. But just to come back to for those that think about what a vaccine is, is it always a vaccine is a dead version of whatever you're trying to vaccinate against? Is it always that simple, or is it a bit more? Oh, there's there's various combinations, and if you think about the history of vaccine development and vaccines, and and Stanley Plotkin's He's the godfather of vaccinology. So if you go and look at his book, you know, the first vaccines were actually taking the pathogen, the dangerous bacteria or virus, and somehow killing it or attenuating it and making it less dangerous and then using that as your vaccine in low dose. The complication with that is obviously it is still a virus or bacteria or, you know, it's still a pathogen that you've somehow killed a little bit but it still has all of these properties that could make it reactogenic and and a little bit, you know, harder to tolerate. So the field in the last 100 years has sort of moved away from live attenuated vaccines to subunits, so where they take... Because nowadays we can sequence the whole genome, we know what bits and pieces are in the bacteria or the virus, let's call it a pathogen, that we want to target... And, you know, you can do all sorts of fancy experiments now with new and emerging technologies to actually tell you, well, it's these bits that I want and those bits that I don't want. And then you can take those proteins, 
you can produce them in vitro, like in a fermenter. If you think of a beer vat, you know, you, you grow them up in a different cell line. And so then you actually are moving away from a live vaccine or, or an attenuated live vaccine and you're moving into subunit vaccines. And the trade-off is that if you stop using the whole pathogen and you start using components of it, is that you're going to trade off on its immunogenicity. So how, how well it works in the body, how well it can initiate a response to the component that you're vaccinating. And then we start to look at, that's where formulations come in. You start to look at, well, what other safe little bits can I put in to stimulate your immune system to be able to respond better to that vaccine component that you've put in? And they're called adjuvants, that's, um, you know. So there's combinations. And is a vaccine always injected? No. Polio, for example, is delivered orally. Most vaccines are injectable, but there are a variety of ways to deliver a vaccine. So polio is oral. There are experimental vaccines that are delivered under the tongue or up the nose. I, I believe there is an intranasal flu vaccine that is a spray up the nose. And there are reasons for that because depending on where you deliver it and how you deliver it, you might get a, a better or poorer immune response or a vaccine response. So, and that depends on the pathogen, the disease. And, and we we're talking about, you know, whether vaccines need to be refrigerated. And so there's, there's also that whole factor to, to, well, to that's come the as cold well. chain. Yeah. So the supply chain and then the cold chain and the mRNA vaccines for COVID were a really good example where Pfizer was the first to come out with emergency use only mRNA vaccine and it needed to be ultra-cold, which means below minus 60, minus 80 degrees. So you needed a minus 80 degree freezer, which laboratories and hospitals have, but not your day-to-day -day, day -day <laughs> day practitioner. So yeah. they needed to find ways to be able to then make the vaccine stable so that primary healthcare nurse practitioners can deliver it and use it. And if you think that a vaccine, if you need to ship it around the world and you need to deliver it to subcontinental Africa, how are you going to do that? You're not going to put a freezer on a plane. So, so there are challenge, technological challenges like that that need to be overcome, and they have been overcome. So now I think the, the next generation mRNA vaccines are actually stable, definitely in the fridge, but possibly even at room temperature so that you don't need a fridge or a cold storage system. The holy grail would be that you can leave it on the bench in whatever temperature you are in and that will be stable for, you know, weeks until you can use it. Yeah, and then you have to so, kind of work back from that point. That's yeah, right. yeah. And so are all these factors in terms of the delivery method and uh, all those different points that we've discussed the last few minutes, they're all factors that you take into consideration right up front when designing a vaccine, uh, yeah, developing absolutely. a vaccine. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So you need to think... When developing any product, vaccine or, or any other drug, you need to think about the end user. Who is going to be taking it? So who is your patient? And that is your market. And then who is going to be delivering that to your patient? It is, is it patient administered? And for vaccines, they are not patient administered. You need to go into a clinic or a GP. A nurse needs to give it to you. So it's quite intense labour that's required to get that vaccine into the arms of people that need it. And 
I read recently, just this week, an article from someone at WHO that said it's all really great to have vaccines on the shelf, but unless they are in the arms of people, they're no use. You can spend billions of dollars and make this and it'll be the best vaccine you've ever made, but unless you can actually get it into the arms of those adults and children in those remote villages and hard-to-reach places... Mm you actually haven't got a vaccine that's yeah, successful. Absolutely. Anything else that we need to cover in relation to vaccine development and the 101? I think, you know, to the investor, to the, to the person thinking about investing in life sciences and vaccines and biotech, I think what you need to... You need to be in it for the long game because it's not something that we do very quickly. It takes time. But I think vaccines are the world's still today they save the most lives than anything else so the impact that vaccines have on human health is unmeasurable. So you just had my interview with Alma Fularia, head of Strep A vaccines at Telethon Kids Institute. Tracy there's a bit more for us to dive into following this conversation before we move on to the 101 of drug development right? Yeah, just a few little 101 definitions that I thought might be useful for a real newcomer. So Alma talks about an antigen, which is basically a substance that causes your immune system to produce an antibody, so an immune response. An antigen can be anything. It can be something from the environment, a chemical, a bacteria, a coronavirus, or even a Mm. pollen. So all of those are basically things that your body recognises as foreign and it says this should not be in your body. We're going to generate an immune response to clear you out of the body. So that's what the antigen is. It's that substance that's foreign. Now, an adjuvant is an ingredient that we use in some vaccines that helps create a stronger immune response. So obviously, if you're receiving a vaccine to prevent against a disease, you want your immune response to be mounted and to last for a long time. And an adjuvant helps that stronger immune system in people who get in the vaccine. So basically an adjuvant helps vaccines work better and an antigen is required to make a vaccine in the first place. Good explanation. Thank you. What I, what I enjoyed about these conversations that you just heard with Alma and you're about to hear with Martine Keenan is I got to ask the what felt like the dumb questions, but what that's good from the listener's point of view is that Absolutely. sometimes you need to get back to basics, right? And I think that that's important too, as you hear the themes in these conversations on this podcast series is it's an area that Sometimes you do just need to ask the basic questions to make sure you've got a good understanding because there's no rush getting involved because once you're in, then it's with a better understanding, you can you can make more confident decisions, it feels like. so. Yeah, so you're about to hear from Martine Keenan. She's the Chief Innovation Officer, which I think might be one of the better job titles going around at the moment, yeah. at Synthesis Research. My name is Martin Keenan. My role is Chief Innovation Officer for a Melbourne-based company called Synthesis Research. And my role there is to translate early stage research into potential therapies for treatments for patients. And we're talking about drug development here as well? We're talking about drug development, yes. So really you need to start with the end in mind, which is what do patients need for therapies and how can we introduce new therapies to the market? And trace that back to some early stage ideas around target biology, for example, 
new modes of action? How can we interact with different biologies in our bodies to make a difference to disease pathology? When we think about how a drug might come to market, like you say, it starts really with the patient need in mind firstly, and then working backwards from there, looking at what existing research is available to then leverage off, or how does it go from once we've identified this is the patients that we're looking to assist, what happens then? So there'll be a hypothesis on how a drug might impact disease pathology, okay, and we're targeting humans, but of course we can't do R&D in humans, so we have to take a step back from that, and typically we will do some R&D in vivo, typically animal models, which are a surrogate for human disease conditions. And the step before going into animal models, you would test your concepts and ideas in vitro. So that means in the laboratory. So going backwards from that, you may start with a hypothesis on how you may be able to treat disease pathology. And then you turn it on its head and work forwards from there. So everything is a surrogate for what might occur in the human condition. You've gone through from those various levels of research and development. Is that where it comes through to clinical trials or is there steps in between? Yeah, there are a lot of steps in between. Okay, so if we take small molecule therapeutics, for example, so drugs, normal drugs, what you might take orally, for example, to treat a condition. Okay, how do we discover those drugs? Where do they come from? So it's a marriage of biology and chemistry in that particular situation because you have to be able to test your disease hypothesis in the laboratory. And so you need a talented biologist to come up with an idea on how to do that. They'll need to test the mechanism of action of their drug and then test how that mechanism of action links to the disease itself and how it might be treated or prevented. And then you would need to start with the origin of a drug. So you would start with a small chemical compound, a molecule, that you may discover from an activity called high-throughput screening, where you, it's a random serendipitous event. You screen maybe up to hundreds of thousands of compounds against your biological target. And then you would need the skill set of medicinal chemistry. So that the, the idea is to make your drug, one, efficacious against your target, two, able to reach your target, so that's called bioavailability, and three, safe to take. So that's the three core elements of drug development efficacy, bioavailability, and safety. And so that's an iterative process of design and optimization. And for a small molecule therapeutic, that can all be controlled by changing the structure of a drug. So that means changing the way the atoms are connected to one another, testing to see how changing that structure impacted those three key elements, efficacy, bioavailability, and safety, understanding the data, having another design hypothesis if some of that needs to be improved, making another compound and doing the testing again. So you want this process to be efficient, you want to have clear outcomes, and you want to be able to take the molecules forward to the next stage. So it's a balance of wanting things to be successful, but also responding to the data that you're getting to tell you whether it could be successful or not. And at the end of the day, it's a de-risking process. So it's such a multi-parameter process. Those three main stages there, which was, remind me again, the... Efficacy. Efficacy. Doing what it needs to do against the target that you hypothesized it acts at. Bioavailability. So if you're taking a drug orally through your mouth, it's got to survive in the stomach. It's got to go into your bloodstream. It's got to be then delivered to the biological target in your body, be that in your body or your brain, for example. And it's got to be able to achieve what it needs to at the site of action. And that's all governed by the physical 
properties of a molecule, for example, if you're developing small molecule therapeutics or the delivery vehicle that you've given it in for some of the other therapies. And then you've got to make sure it's safe. There will be a, a window in which there's a certain level of drug will reach your target that will do what you want it to do. And then there might be a maximum allowed in terms of other off-target events that may occur in your body that may compromise the drug safety in terms of how much you can take. Got it. And those three stages, are they, say, owned by the same group of people that are taking through the process or do they pass hands through different groups? How does that work? Yeah, it's a very collaborative discipline. So I think an easy separation of skill sets would be what's called preclinical, so the early stage R&D, and then the clinical skill sets as you prep the drug to be able to take be taken by patients. Those two distinctions, there's a, a group of scientists that would work together with different skill sets to enable the full testing of the drug that you're trying to develop so that you can understand every aspect of the process. And certainly for small molecule therapeutics, you might start by making a, a lot of compounds and at each stage you're trying to eliminate all the possibilities of what that drug could be. And so eventually you come down to one or two very clear compounds that could be taken into the clinic. And then there's another round of optimization again, against those three aspects of efficacy, bioavailability and safety. And the bars get higher and higher and higher. So by the time you get to the clinic, you should have a safe, efficacious drug that then you still have to try in patients because up to this point, everything has been a surrogate for human. And so you have to build this body of evidence that what you think your drug will do will actually occur and in a safe manner. This sounds like it takes a lot of time and money. <laughs> yes, am it I, does. Am I correct in that assumption? You are correct in that assumption. Yes, it can take a lot of time. I mean, the product development cycle, if you want to think of it in that, is 20 years plus. And some of these early concept ideas may take five to 10 years to incubate before people really think that it would be a good mechanism of action, yes, to try and target in a patient. And so there's an absolutely fundamental role for Blue Skies research in the ecosystem to generate these ideas and then translation scientists like myself who are able to harness the ideas, work with the key scientific drivers of the hypothesis and help them translate their ideas into something that could be useful in a patient going through all those hoops that uh, I mentioned. And where does the funding come from majority of the time for drug development? Yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> so obviously the fundamental research funded through universities and medical research institutes would come through government funding. There's a lot of philanthropic funding and there's private investor funding as well. So it's a combination. That's an ecosystem of itself. Once we've got a drug that's in patients, is that then clinic? Is that where at the clinical trial stage now? That's a clinical trial stage, yes. So your first test is if it's, is it safe? So this is phase one. You have a small number of patients, healthy patients typically, some of the maybe only drugs that can be tested in disease state. You'd have a small number of patients in need of treatment. So you test the drug in them to check your dose level. So again, you've done all your, it's called pharmacokinetics, how much compound is in your bloodstream you know, com compared to maybe the modelling you did in a rodent or in a larger animal. So there's a scaling factor there. So does that scale in a human? And then how does that, translate into what's tolerated in a human. So you have a dose, dose escalation study typically, and then you decide on what dose is suitable to give to a patient with the disease you're trying to treat in the next phase of the study, which is phase two. 
So you do a, in a small patient cohort to test for efficacy and safety again. And then once you have those initial readouts, you would scale up and this is what phase three is. And drugs can fail for many reasons. They can fail because they didn't deliver the efficacy that was expected. They could fail because there was unexpected adverse events. And sometimes they fail because they can't be funded to the end. Is that regular thing that after going through all of that pre-work and then getting to clinical trial stage, is there statistics on how many drugs don't make it to, you know, the shell? Yes, most fail at various points along that journey. And what you hope is when you get to phase three that you, the success rate is much higher because obviously you've invested a lot of time and money into that point. But they do fail for unexpected reasons. So this is why the preclinical stage of drug development is very important that you leave no stone unturned. You do as much evaluation on every aspect of the, the drug that you possibly can think of and should do so that... By the time you get to those late-stage studies, you've de-risked the drug development as much as you can until it actually gets into a human. Any other points for someone that's hoping to get a starter about understanding drug development? Is there anything else that we haven't really touched? There's the consideration of what unmet need might be, the consideration of the competitive landscape in terms of what can your technology bring that's, that's better than what others are trying to achieve. Is there opportunity to collaborate with those people? And so, yeah, there is a completely non-biological considerations and to the industry in, in, in terms of actually what gets through. And at the end of the day, it's got to make commercial sense because that's really the best way to meet patient need is that the people who invest in the opportunities are able to achieve their milestones as well as people who are on the clinical side and the preclinical side are able to achieve their milestones as well. Yeah, just because a drug works doesn't mean it will succeed. Correct, it's, yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. This podcast has been brought to you by Life Sciences WA, which is Western Australia's Life Sciences Industry Association, in collaboration with Talking Health Tech. It's been made possible with funding support from the Western Australian Government through the New Industries Fund and the Ready Initiative, managed by MTP Connect on behalf of the Medical Research Future Fund and with the support of Ant Health. If you liked this episode, please complete the feedback survey. There's a link to that survey you can access from within your podcast player. You can also follow Life Sciences WA on LinkedIn and Twitter or subscribe to the mailing list at lifesciencewa.com.au.